So today is part two of a sermon entitled, The Christ, the Law, and the Christian Life. Now, this is a massive topic, and one of the things that you would do, say if you were reading through a systematic theology, uh, you, would get, you would get to a topic like this, and probably broken, probably be dispersed all throughout the book, but you would get to a topic like this, and there would be intensive treatment of various passages of the scriptures so that you would begin to kind of construct uh, an understanding theologically in terms of what, what does the whole Bible teach on this topic? This is one of the most important of the passages. This is a key passage that we should come to. And we interpret this passage in light of other passages. But this is nonetheless one of those that stands kind of at the top in terms of how we understand the way that Jesus and his gospel relate back to the Old Testament. And last week we encountered two truths as we began to study this passage by looking at the first two verses. So last week, we only kind of dipped our toe into the passage and we looked at verses 17 to 18. And in those first two verses, we discovered these two truths. First, prior scripture is to endure down to the smallest detail. And you know this because if you open up your Bible this morning, guess what? It's all there. It's all there. You go back, Genesis all the way up to Malachi, boom, then you hit Matthew, the genealogy. It's all there, the Old Testament. So we intuitively already know this because we carry it around with our New Testament in one book called the Holy Bible. Two Testaments, one book. So prior scripture is to endure down to the smallest detail. That's one truth we must maintain. And a second truth is this. All of this prior scripture... All of it. We talked about how law and the prophets being a a way of referring to all of the Old Testament. That all of this prior scripture is fulfilled in Christ. It endures till the end, yet it is fulfilled in Christ. How do we kind of put these two things together? That's what we looked at last week. And now as we come to verses 19 and 20, we are given three different responses to these truths. Or we could say three different categories of people. So as you begin to kind of relate these two things, enduring scripture, fulfilling Christ, and you begin to understand them, there are three kind of categories that you can fall into. There are three categories that churches could fall into, that individuals could fall into, that systematic theologies could fall into, denominations could fall into. And there are these, the healthy, the unhealthy, and the rotten. The healthy, the unhealthy, and the rotten. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. As we come to verses 19 and 20, we're going to try to understand how one deals with these truths that Jesus outlines in verses 17 and 18. So first, let's look at the healthy. The healthy. I'll read all of verse 19, but it is the second part of verse 19 that I'm focusing in on here. So look at verse 19. Therefore, so we know that everything Jesus has just said, everything we're about to read follows logically from what we've just read, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, whoever relaxes, notice whoever, that's one category of people. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever, that's another category, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That whoever, that category of individuals, that person, that church, that group, that theology is healthy. Healthy. So let's look at that. What do I mean here by healthy. You'll understand why I use the language of health when we get to the last point, rotten. You'll understand why I've chosen this as a way of thinking about it. So we ended last week by discussing how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law. And I drew your attention to the four ways mentioned by Sinclair Ferguson. I like the way that, that he kind of condenses all of this into these four key ways that Jesus fulfills the law. Now, we know that Jesus has fulfilled the law in a whole host of ways. Some people want to understand this very specifically, and others want to say, look, there's no way in which we can determine precisely how Jesus fulfills the law. He's just, he's just the fulfillment of the law in a blanket way, in a general way. And now you can go and discuss all the different ways. It's multifaceted, but you can't reduce it 
to one way. And so people debate this. But I like the way Ferguson kind of outlines these four specific ways, kind of to give us handles that we can hold on to as we enter into this very complex and rich and beautiful subject. And so the first three ways that he says Jesus fulfills the Old Testament is that he fulfills the law in his doctrine and in his teaching. He explicates, he elucidates, he fills up that which went before. He doesn't replace it. He doesn't come along and say, that was part one, here's part two. He really just unpacks and elucidates all the fullness of it as he begins to teach. And we're gonna see that in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount as he begins to talk about what it means, not to, what it means to, to not uh, murder, what it means to not commit adultery, and all of these other things that Jesus will go into. So we talked about that last week. We talked about how he fulfills the law in his deeds and his lifestyle. How Jesus was a perfect law keeper. In every single respect, at every moment. I heard a sermon preached on this one time. It was just amazing. It really blew me away to think about the fact that Jesus never sinned. He never even had a thought that was off course a tiny bit. So even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus prays, not your, not your will, not my will, but your will, we see Jesus there agonizing, and he is, he's being tempted. Even in that, Jesus did not sin, not even a tiny bit. He never deviated one small bit from God's perfect will found in the law. He kept it in every detail, every jot and tittle, every iota and dot, he perfectly kept the law. So he fulfills it in his teaching, he fulfills it in his deeds and lifestyle, and he fulfilled the law in his death. The curse of the law, the penalty of the law, you find at the end of Deuteronomy, satisfied in Jesus. He dies on the cross, he pays the penalty that the law requires against law breakers. He paid that penalty perfectly. And we see the truth of God's holiness and man's sinfulness, which the law is meant to communicate as you approach the temple and you approach the tabernacle. You're supposed to see a holy God and a sinful man. And in the cross of Christ, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man come together as you begin to understand the meaning of Christ crucified. So those are the first three ways. The fourth way it's what we're going to kind of try to unpack a little bit this morning, and that is Jesus fulfills the law in his disciples. In his disciples. So we're not just talking about Jesus' fulfillment of the law in his incarnation. He came. He lived upon earth. He's going to come back again, and there's going to be that much more fulfillment of all of the things that the Old Testament promised. But we're also talking about the fulfillment of the law lived out even today, this morning in the life of Jesus' disciples. And this is where we begin to understand how Christ and the law now come together in the life of a Christian. Christ, the law, and the Christian. How do all of these things begin to converge? Hence the title, The Christ, the Law, and the Christian Life. So how does Jesus fulfill the law of God in his disciples? How do we, how do we understand that? We, we know he came and he fulfilled it while he was here. How does he do it now in his disciples? And if we're going to gain a basic understanding of this, of how it all fits together, there really is no better place to go than Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul's letter, Romans, to the Roman Christians and there are a few things, and there's much there. It's a massive topic. Galatians is a great place to go if you want to understand law and gospel, how they fit together. Galatians is a great place to go. Plenty of material there. But Romans is also a great place to go because Romans is not just dealing with a very specific. See, in Galatians, Paul is dealing with a very specific group of people. And he's dealing with a very specific issue that requires him to hone in on one aspect, only one aspect of that so that he can attack that heresy. But in Romans, Paul is giving kind of a, a grand sweeping understanding of the gospel and how everything is fitting together and what is it that he preaches? What is this gospel that he preaches, this large biblical theology, this message of truth that Paul elevates and preaches? What is that? And in the midst of all of that, we get lots of bits of great information about how the gospel and the law fit together. And so I just want to look at a few of those. Much more could be said this morning, but I just want to look at a few clues that help us to understand how 
The law of God is fulfilled in the disciples. So first, here's how we understand the law in the Old Testament. First, the law shows man his sin by showing him that he does not and cannot keep the law. That he does not and cannot keep the law. So the law doesn't save anybody. Not a single person, because wherever it goes, it brings one thing with it. The verdict, guilty. Wherever the law is, there's a verdict, guilty. This side of Adam, which is everybody, that verdict remains. Every descendant of Adam, we see this in Genesis 3, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel, we see this in the subsequent chapters when we get to the flood, when we get to the Tower of Babel. We see the, the crookedness and wickedness of man's heart. The entire earth is filled with vileness. Even Noah and his family, you see the sin even there. And there's, it's incredible when you get to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you see Jacob's 12 sons and all the craziness going on with those guys and the wives and the disputes and the sin that they commit. It's only because of their sin, which God uses, that ultimately God brings salvation to them through Joseph because they all would have starved to death had Joseph not been sold into slavery and gone to Egypt and there became this, the right-hand man to Pharaoh and then been able to give food to his brothers when they came there to get it in Egypt. As Joseph will say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So we know all people, all people are corrupt and sinful. And we know this in Romans 5. Paul talks about the fact that through one man, sin came into the world and death came through sin and it came to all men. And so all of us are under this verdict, guilty. And what the law does is it comes along and it says, know this, know this, know this. It speaks it loudly. It screams it in the ear. It brings sin to life in that sense and makes clear that none is righteous. That's the function of the law. So Paul will say this in Romans 3.20. For by the works of the law, listen closely to his logic. For by the works of the law, that means keeping the law, doing what the law says to do. By works of the law, no human being will be justified or made right in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's why. The minute you begin to see the law and you start to keep it is the minute that your conscience renders you guilty as it, as it considers what the law has to say. So the law does not make us righteous, but rather shows us that we are unrighteous. That's the first thing I want you to see about the law, as it's understood there in Romans, as Paul unpacks it. The second point that I think we need to see about the law is that the verdict of guilty that the law brings is removed when we trust in Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins. So the verdict is guilty, 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 guilty over every single person. Every single person will stand before God and be rendered guilty and cast from his presence. Just as Adam and Eve were cast from the garden, just as every man lives doing what is right in his own sight, as we see in Judges, every man does that even today. When that person dies and stands before God, they will be cast from his presence forever. But this verdict of guilty is removed for those who trust in Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what Paul means in Romans 8, that wonderful passage. As you've gone through all the theology of Romans and you get to Romans 8.1, he says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All this condemnation, all this guilt Colossians 2 talks about being taken and nailed to the cross. That, that record of debt that stood against us is taken and nailed to the cross as Jesus dies for our sins. And that's what we get in Romans 8. No condemnation, no guilt for those who are in Christ. We are justified or made right in God's sight by believing in Jesus. This is the gospel. This is what we preach and teach. This is what we must believe to be saved. This gospel so that's the second important thing about the law. The third thing that you need to see 
is, and I think that this is most relevant to our discussion, as a person is united to Christ and the condemnation of the law is removed, that person is also, listen to this, this is so important, that person is also empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out in real time God's written law from the heart. To literally live out God's written law from the heart. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. We see this in Romans 7. Remember, we're staying in Romans. We're kind of walking through Paul's material there about the law and the gospel. In Romans 7, Paul says this about himself as a believer. For I delight, listen to this, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Christian, that's you. At the core of who you are, if you're really a Christian, if you're really a believer, you love God's law. Now you sin, and you can become entangled with sin. You can grow short-sighted. You can grow, as, as Walt preached to us a, a, number, a couple of months ago, you can become blinded to the fact that you have been redeemed to what's happened to you. You can become carnally minded. You can sow to the flesh and walk in the flesh. All of these things can happen. But Romans 7.22 makes clear that for the person who belongs to Jesus, who's been united to him in salvation, receive the Holy Spirit, this is a person who at the core of their person delights in the law of the Lord. Like the Psalm 1 person. He delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. That's who a Christian is at the core, someone who delights in God's law. And then I love this. In Romans 8, 4, it goes, he goes on to say that the righteous requirement, this is very important. This is the pivotal verse you have to get. Romans 8, 4, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What that means is this, that for the person who has been united to Christ and been reborn, this is a person who lives out the law truly in his or her daily life. This law that once stood over us, condemning us and showing us guilty, 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 now we are freed up from the heart to love this law and to live this perfect law of God every day in every sphere of influence, in every relationship. This is who we are. And this is exactly what we find in the New Covenant, right? Remember the New Covenant passage, Jeremiah 31, 33, where it talks about God says that, that he's going to bring a new covenant in the future? Listen to, the, listen to what the words say. We had this as our call to worship this morning. Jeremiah 31, 33 says this. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What a wonderful description of a Christian. I will write my law on their hearts. So when you think today about yourself, as you leave here today, and you're thinking about your identity as a Christian, one of the core ideas, one of the most significant ideas that you must understand if you are to understand who you are in Christ, it is this. You are one upon whose heart God has written his law. God's law is written on my heart. So back to our main question. How does Jesus fulfill the law of God in his disciples? Remember, that's the question that we set out to answer just a moment ago. How does he do this in his disciples? And the answer is this. He takes the condemnation of the law upon himself at the cross. By freeing his disciples from its guilt, he removes all of that so that they no longer are condemned. And he does this by giving his spirit to live inside of us so that we delight in and do the law of God from the heart. That's how Jesus fulfills the law now. So think of it this way. You think about Jesus as the one who fulfilled the law and you think, yeah, he, he, he did that prophecy, he fulfilled that prophecy, and he lived the law perfectly. But I want you to see this. It has to do with your life when you leave here today. 
You walk out of here today and you live unto the Lord. As the law of God's written on your heart, you live holy lives unto God. That in and of itself is a, is a working out of Christ's fulfillment of the law in and through you. What an amazing way to glorify Christ. What an amazing way to make much of him, to hold him up as great. I like what John Stott says on this point. He puts it this way. For what the Spirit does in our hearts is precisely to write God's law there. You know, it's amazing to me. Sometimes we don't even think about this. We think, okay, God saved me and my sins are forgiven. And now here I am. I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. And that's it. We exhaust the Christian life there. That's it. I mean, there's nothing else. It's just, now it's just you want to reproduce that. I I, I was a sinner. God forgave me. My sins are forgiven. I'm I'm a Christian now. I got to reproduce that for somebody else. And that's it. That exhausts the Christian life. What we need to understand is, as we saw in Titus, that all of this salvation, all of this grace is bent towards creating people who are zealous for good works. People who do God's law, who live holy unto the Lord. The Spirit, what he does in our hearts is precisely to write God's law there. In some ways, that's where your salvation consists in that. That's amazing to think that. This means that we must teach God's, well, we must teach others to live out the moral law of God found in Scripture. But before I go to that, let me say this point. It should be no surprise to us when Jesus says that his coming will not abolish the law. So, so everything I just said, keep that in mind. Put that on one side. Everything I just said about the law and the writing of it on the heart, put that on one side and then consider our passage. It should be no surprise to us when we come to this passage that Jesus says that his coming will not abolish the law. That would make no sense in light of what I've just talked about. And that those who are considered great in his kingdom are those who do and teach God's holy law. In light of what salvation is, in light of what God has come to do in our hearts, it should make no surprise to us that Jesus would say that those who do the law and those who teach the law will be called great in the kingdom of God. This means that we must teach others to live out the moral law found in scripture which God has placed on every Christian heart. I want to say this, the written word, which we have in the Old Testament, the written word is instructing and reinforcing the way that we should go. What we have upon our hearts is being, is, is being reinforced, and that is inst- the written word is instructing us and reinforcing our very identity as it provides, as Sinclair Ferguson says, train tracks upon which the life of love moves. These are train tracks upon which we move in the Christian life. Which means that when the law begins to move over to the side and you don't care about the law, you don't care about the Old Testament, you don't care about what the Old Testament has to say, you don't care about the moral law of God, you begin to lose sight of train tracks and you begin to go off into all sorts of places because we still battle the flesh. We still battle sin. So it means teaching that. It also means teaching others that the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws associated with temple worship have been entirely fulfilled in Christ's death and are no longer to be practiced now that that fulfillment has come. So whatever we are to say about verse 19, look at verse 19 again. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. And then we see those, the other whoever, Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. However we are to understand doing and teaching these commandments, we must remember the fact that Jesus came to fulfill them. In other words, we no longer go to a temple. We're not going to a temple to offer sacrifices because Christ fulfilled those sacrifices in offering his own body, giving up his own blood, offering himself as a priest We no longer have dietary food laws. Those laws have been fulfilled in Christ, entirely fulfilled in Christ's death so that those things are no longer practiced by Christians. But the moral law of God, that which we find in the Ten Commandments, is lived out from the heart of every believer. There's no more circumcision. There is no more refraining from pork. 
There is no more uh, going through certain washings. There's no more burning of incense in this or that way at this or that place. And there's no more going to a temple offering animals on an altar in sacrifice to God. All of that has been fulfilled and set aside in Christ. And so I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones puts this. As he talks about the ceremonial law. So you're wondering today, you know, does this mean... That uh, as we read here, does this mean I need to go out and start observing this or that again, you know, just as the Jews did? And this is what Lloyd-Jones says. I say, I am fulfilling it all, speaking of the ceremonial law, the worship, the sacrifices of the Old Testament. I am fulfilling it all by believing in Christ and by subjecting myself to him. In other words, as you believe in Christ as the Lamb of God, catch this, as you believe in Christ as the Lamb of God, you are fulfilling even in that all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. You are perfectly fulfilling all of those sacrifices as they went to the temple by believing in the Lamb of God as the propitiation for our sins, as the one who satisfies God's wrath through his own body. This morning... When we come to celebrate communion, and we have that, the bread and, and the juice or the wine, and we have that, we partake of that, that is a way of affirming visually for all to see that we believe that Jesus has fulfilled all of those sacrifices, that we believe that those sacrifices were necessary because they communicated the holiness of God and the sin of man, and all of those have been fulfilled in Jesus, and by doing this this morning, we are communicating that we believe that. We're communicating that we've subjected ourselves to this holy lamb of God. And in that, we are fulfilling the law of God from the heart. This means that all of this Old Testament material remains relevant for Christian teaching and application. So that's healthy. If doing and teaching in this way is healthy or associated with greatness in Christ's kingdom, then what does it mean to be unhealthy? What does it mean to be an unhealthy Christian in this regard? What does it mean to be an unhealthy church or to have an unhealthy theology in this regard? If in your life you have given very little attention to the Old Testament, if you have thought the Old Testament irrelevant, if you have thought the Old Testament kind of nullified, canceled out, shouldn't even really be in the Bible, that is an indication that you have an unhealthy theology. That is an indication that your understanding of the Bible is unhealthy. And that's what we will see as we come to the beginning of verse 19. Look there again, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The word for relax means to loosen or untie, and it should be connected to back to what Jesus had just said about abolishing. He just told his disciples in verse 18, he said, well, he said in verse 17, I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, to relax the Old Testament law is to act as though Jesus did not come to fulfill but to abolish. To relax the Old Testament law, as Jesus defines it here, is, is, is another way of saying, I'm going to live as though Jesus came to abolish the law. Jesus came, he abolished the law, throw that thing over there in the trash, we're good to go now, and that's how I'm going to live. That is what it means to do, at the beginning of verse 19, what it says, relax even the least of these commandments. So what are some unhealthy pitfalls? How do we know if maybe we're falling into this, if this has become our theology or this has become our way of understanding God's word? First, I think it is a failure to pursue holiness. A, a lack of regard for sanctification. You could, even say, you could even say here antinomianism, a kind of anti-law, a kind of a, a way of looking at the gospel a way of looking at grace that does not also emphasize a, a robust uh, striving after holiness that the New Testament also calls us to do. 
So it is a way of looking at the cross or a way of looking at God's grace that somehow acts as though the law has been abolished, totally thrown in the trash and dismisses it altogether. That is antinomianism. That historically in the church has been regarded very much as unhealthy doctrine. That is unhealthy theology. A failure to pursue holiness, to teach holiness. Hear that. It's not just to pursue it, but it's a failure to teach it. We should all be instructing each other in holiness. To not do so is to fail to do what Jesus is saying to do here. It is to fall into an unhealthy pit. A second unhealthy pitfall is a failure to see the role of the Old Testament law in directing our Christian lives. Should you read Job? Yes. Should you read the Psalms and apply them to your Christian life? Yes. Should you read Leviticus and Numbers and all of those books to apply them to your Christian life? Yes, yes, yes. These things are still relevant to living out the Christian life. We know this because of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. By the way, when Paul wrote this to Timothy and he was referring to Scripture, guess what he was talking about? Just the Old Testament. That's not to say anything negative about the New Testament. It's simply to say that this is prior to there being New Testament documents that have been written. Perhaps some of them have been written at this time. But this is prior to those being understood as a body of text. When Paul is talking to Timothy and he talks about the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. What does he say to Timothy about those scriptures? He says this. He says, the sacred scriptures, the Old Testament, are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? What's he doing? He's not reading John. He's not reading Romans. He's reading Isaiah. And God convicts his heart and he needs it understood and he does get it understood and we have it understood by the New Testament. We're able to go back and read Isaiah in light of the New Testament and be edified by that material in Isaiah, by that material in Leviticus, by that material in Psalms and so forth. How often do we go back to try to understand what's happening at the cross and look at Leviticus? How often do we go back and try to understand Jesus's atonement and what it accomplished for us and what it means and its significance and all of its implications by going back to the sacrificial system and understanding what went on? There. Sorry, I'll go back. The sacred scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, he's talking here about the Old Testament, all scripture, and subsequent to that, the New Testament, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. The Old Testament teaches you. For reproof, the Old Testament reproves you. For correction, it will correct you. And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want to grow in good works? You want to grow in holiness? You want to grow in fruitfulness and usefulness? You need the Old Testament. You need to read it and know it, study it, apply it, interpret it in light of Christ and know it and let it live out in your life. Another pitfall that we can find on the opposite side of things is a failure to treat what has been fulfilled as fulfilled. A failure to treat what has been fulfilled as fulfilled. So Colossians 2, 16 to 17 says this, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. So there were people uh, after the gospel was being preached who were saying, okay, great, this whole Jesus thing is wonderful, but you gotta get circumcised and you gotta observe these days and you gotta observe these feasts and you need to only eat this food. And so they, what they did was they took the Old Testament law and the prophets and they moved them forward as though they weren't fulfilled. They, they didn't abolish them, that's for sure. They kept them going but forgot the fact that they were fulfilled. And so that's why Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow. Listen to this. These things in the Old Testament, these judicial and ceremonial laws in the Old Testament are a shadow, a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Shadow, substance. 
So to continue to live out the Christian life, and there are certain groups, sects, cults, and others who fail to see this, and that's the reason that they fall into false doctrine, is because they fail to see the fact that, yes, we don't abolish the law. We have it in our Bibles. It's all there. We study it. We do Bible studies on these things. We learn them. We apply them. They're still going, but we understand that they're still going as fulfilled. Not that they're still going in the same way that they were before Christ came. The law and the prophets were until John. But since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is being proclaimed. Some fail to see this, and they fall into a pit of unhealthy doctrine. But as we go to the rotten, I want you to see that these first two categories are for those who are in the kingdom. Notice that. You know, God is gracious. (laughs) We err. We can be quite foolish as Christians. But notice that the the healthy and the unhealthy are still in the kingdom. The healthy are considered great from God's perspective in the kingdom. Those who are unhealthy, who have this poor theology, who err in these points about the way we relate the law and the gospel, this is unhealthy, but still in the kingdom. We come now to a category of those who are not in the kingdom. They're those who are in the kingdom, healthy and unhealthy alike, fruitful and unfruitful, useful and useless within the kingdom, but then there are those who are outside of the kingdom, and that's where we come to our final category, the rotten. The rotten. Look at verse 20 as we finish up this morning. Verse 20, the rotten. Pronounce those T's. I lived in Scotland for too long, didn't pronounce any of my T's. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees, what a fun topic. They were among the staunchest opponents of Jesus during his ministry. We've got the priests, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, the elders, all of, these, all of these categories, and you can go and you can look at what all of them were, and sometimes it's unclear how all of them relate to one another. So you could be a scribe and a Pharisee, but the scribes and the Pharisees are seen as these kind of two categories that were interrelated, but nonetheless somewhat distinct, and they were very instrumental in having Jesus crucified. They were some of those who called for his death and they were some of those who were celebrating his death as he was being crucified, mocking him. Come down off that cross if you're the son of God. Come on down. Come on down, Jesus. Mocking him there at the cross. These men were considered to be the best law keepers around. You could not get better than these guys when it came to keeping the law. In the strict sense of the word keeping, these guys were the creme de la creme. They were the best. The scribes, they studied the law. They they dedicated their lives. These were like scholars, biblical study scholars, but even more intense than that. These guys night and day studied the scriptures for the minutia, and they knew how many words there were in every book, and they had it memorized, and they knew exactly how everything related to everything else, except for the, of course, the, the, the weightier matters and the significance of the law and what it was really saying. But they were looking at all the trees. They lost sight of the forest, but they knew everything about every single one of the trees. They interpreted it and they applied it. These guys were the ones you go to. These guys are the ones writing the commentary, so to speak, in the first century for the Jews. You want to know what the, what the deal is with this law or that law? and how? Go talk to the scribes. Those guys know. We saw that in Matthew with the wise men. When the wise men come, what does Herod do? Get, get the scribes, get the scribes, get the scribes. I need to know what's going on here. Why are these guys coming here looking for the king? I'm the king. And he, of course, calls these scribes to tell him, about the Messiah, where he was to be born. The Pharisees are a sect devoted to strict legal observance. These guys aren't, aren't, aren't so much the, the scholars, but these are the guys who've said, I'm devoting my whole life to living out every single detail of this law, devoted to strict legal observance. Surely, these guys were the ones going, who were going to make it to heaven. It was even said if there were two people who went to heaven, it would be a scribe and a Pharisee. Those were the guys who were going to heaven. And all the people kind of looked up to them in that way and thought that they were the, these were the holy men. Now I want you to see something. If a scribe or Pharisee, remember the crowd is overhearing Jesus. 
at this point. He's got his disciples, but the crowd is listening too. And in the crowd, undoubtedly, there are scribes and Pharisees. Remember, they come to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist calls, you brood of vipers. He, John just blasts them when they come to him, because he knows they're hypocrites. They're filled with evil. These guys are undoubtedly in the crowds, have nothing else to kind of figure out what Jesus is saying, to nail him down. And at this point in Jesus' argument, verse 19, they're probably going, that's right, Jesus, every jot and tittle, every single letter, and every single stroke of a letter must be kept. And we do that. I don't know about you, Jesus, but we do that. So at this point, these guys are shaking their head. They're quite self-satisfied, quite happy with everything Jesus has said about the law enduring till the end. They had decided, or as going through studying the scriptures, they had determined that there were 613 commands in the Old Testament. 613 commands of the law. 248 of them were positive. They had long lists. There were 248 commands that were positive, And 365 commands that were negative. So if they did not do these 365 things, and they did these 248 things, they'd be good to go. And if they did or did not do them in their own way. See, they got to determine how to do them and not do them, and what that meant to do them and to not do them. Meticulous, external, law-keeping with corrupt hearts that lack faith and love. That is what we have with these guys. But then, verse 20, they're listening, they're shaking their heads. Jesus delivers the hammer upon their heads. This supposed righteousness is not righteousness at all, Jesus says, And unless you have a better righteousness, a qualitatively different righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, is what Jesus says. And the reason I have labeled this category as rotten is because of what Jesus says about the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27 to 28. And I actually want you to turn to Matthew 23 because here's why. I thought about kind of describing the Pharisees and scribes to you. Uh, But then as as I thought more about it, I thought, you know, There is no better way to describe the Pharisees and the scribes than the way Jesus describes them when he blasts them in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. So rather than give you a bunch of kind of pulling it all together and give you three or four points that explain to you who they were and what they did, let me just let you read what Jesus had to say about these guys. Okay, it's pretty wretched. But the reason that I have chosen the word rotten is because of what he says in Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of what? Dead people's bones and all uncleanness. These guys are morally corrupt. Verse 28, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These guys are rotten at the core. So let's see, let's read this. What does Jesus have to say about these guys, the scribes and the Pharisees? What is the content of their religion? How do they understand the law and Jesus and how all this fits together? Matthew 23, starting in verse 1. Follow along with me, if you will. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Once again, Jesus there is showing that he came under the law to obey it. But not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. These are their, their garments. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. They love it when they walk through the door. Oh, oh, come, 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 come. Here, we have a seat for you. They love that. It feels so good. So honored. And greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Back to the woes. Verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. 
hypocrites. By the way, notice, that's the prevailing word. Hypocrites, 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 hypocrites. That's who these guys are. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land. These guys are incredible evangelists. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Wow. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, aha, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the, the, gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God. And by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. They separate a tenth of their crops in their garden. Take a little tenth off. Put to the side. They make sure that they get that to God, so to speak, in their own mind. Mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. In other words, trying to avoid a tiny little gnat, the sin of not tithing your cumin, but swallowing a camel in their wickedness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, rotten, godless, religious folks." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. We would not have killed the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. Let me just pause for anyone in here who thinks Jesus was this cuddly, kind of uh, just nice, pat everyone on the back, I hope now you see that's not the case. I don't know what Bible those folks are reading, but we've just read this. This is just a sample. This is just a sample of the way that Jesus blasts sin, and especially this particular kind of sin. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. There's much that we could say here about the scribes and Pharisees. But I hope that you at least get this. They had no faith in God. The just shall live by faith, Paul said. They did not have faith in God. They loved themselves. They didn't love God. They didn't love their neighbor. If all the law hangs on these two, love of God and love of neighbor, they failed miserably because all they cared about was their own glory. And the means by which they were to establish their own glory and their own distinction among other men was by meticulously making sure that they kept all of this legal code so that they could be different from all of the others and so that they could, they could be over them. But we know that they did not keep the law because they missed the weightier matters of the law and because they failed to see what Paul tells us. The law does not make you righteous. Keeping the law cannot make you righteous. Only faith in Christ. And the reason that these men reject Jesus is because they are descendants 
of those who reject God's word and murder the prophets. Do you see how Christ and the law come together there? They did not just reject Jesus. You must see this. The the problem with the Pharisees is deeper than the fact they rejected Jesus. They weren't good before they rejected Jesus. They were wicked before Jesus arrived on the scene. And they were wicked because they had always belonged to those who rejected God's word, God's law. They rejected God's law before him. Those who faithfully walked in God's law are those like Joseph, Mary's husband, who are called blameless and righteous. Those like John the Baptist and like others that we see at the beginning of the New Testament. These people were those who lived by faith and they were blameless according to the law. These men desired to establish their own salvation by keeping the law. They failed to love and obey God's word even before his incarnate word came. The fact that they put to death the word of God eternal demonstrates the fact that they did not understand the law nor its fulfillment. They were utterly rotten. And what I want to say to you today here is it is one thing to be in the kingdom and to wrestle with these questions. It is another thing to be outside of the kingdom and to be trying to establish your own righteousness. And here's what I want you to see. Every person who is apart from Christ is like these men because every person apart from Christ is a person who deep down somewhere in his or her soul believes that he or she can be righteous, can, can be good, can, can meet God's standard apart from him. In order to be in the kingdom, we have to become poor in spirit and understand that apart from Christ crucified, his blood, his satisfaction of God's wrath on our behalf, we have no salvation and no hope. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his blood and his broken body, which we will celebrate, his his torn body, which we will celebrate here in a moment as we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you that by your spirit we, we walk in accordance with your law from the heart and we delight in it. God, help us leave here today delighting in it, recognizing it's been fulfilled, that, that we, cannot, uh, we, can, we, we cannot go back pre-Christ and try to act as though it hasn't been fulfilled. But Lord, help us not live as though it is abolished. We also pray, God, that you will help us not to live lives that mirror these scribes and Pharisees, God. Recognizing that as those who are even in the kingdom, we can begin to take on characteristics of hypocrisy, like these scribes and Pharisees. And Lord, help those perhaps who are here this morning who don't know you to understand that in their own efforts, there's no hope that apart from your son's death on their behalf, there is one verdict upon their head and it is guilty. And one day you will render that verdict and cast them from your presence forever. God, I pray that your spirit will regenerate hearts today and transform those of us who belong to your son into greater Christ-likeness. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.